respond to God and Jesus, his son, uh, shapes how we respond to the rest of life. And that's true for you whether you realize it or not, that how you respond to God and Jesus shapes how you respond to the rest of life. If, if your perspective of God and Jesus is, is true and healthy and ever-increasing, so will your response of faith be, and so will that response of faith shape how you do life, how you do relationships, how you interact with people, how you handle uh, your finances, how you handle good times and bad times, how, how you um, handle the desires that are within your heart, how you handle fear, disappointment, how you handle your ethics. I mean, just all of life is really shaped and formed by your perception and response to God and Jesus. If your perspective of God and Jesus is limited or unhealthy or false or stifled or distorted, so will your responses to life be. Let's read the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. Um, we're told by Mark that Jesus left there. So again, he's still ministering around that, the, the cities around the Sea of Galilee. And he left where he was at, and he went to his hometown, which was what? What's that? Nazareth. He was known as a Nazarene. So he's born in Bethlehem. The, uh, Mary and Joseph don't spend a lot of time in Bethlehem, maybe up to two years. They uh, escape at one point to Egypt, end up settling in Nazareth. As an adult, he spends a lot of time in and around Capernaum. But this is saying that he's gone back to, I guess he's traveling southwest to Nazareth. Accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And again, I've mentioned that the practice was is that if a traveling preacher came in, they were often welcome to come and speak on the scripture that was read for that day in the Jewish church setting, the synagogue. So then they asked, where did this man get these things? They asked, and what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So Jesus' hometown neighbors stand in stark contrast to the stories that we heard about last week. The story of Jairus and his daughter that was sick and died and Jesus raised from the dead. The story of the woman who had the issue of bleeding, who if I can only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Shows that close proximity to Jesus is not an assurance of faith. 
Even Jesus' family, at least early on, did not recognize him for who he was, though that changed for some later. Close proximity to Jesus is not an assurance of faith. Now, what I mean by that is Jesus can be in and around. People who know Jesus can be in and around. People who trust Jesus can be around you. You can be hearing about it all the time. You can go to church week after week after week. You can grow up in a Christian family, but that is not an assurance of faith. How are you responding to Jesus? They don't deny, these folks don't deny Jesus' wisdom. They don't deny that he is a doer of miracles, for surely his reputation for that has preceded him. Yet they dismiss him. Why? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get the sense that that was not nearly the same measure, right, of what he was doing in other places. And maybe it was quiet, a few sick folks laying on of hands. He was just one of them. Any other thoughts why Jesus is dismissed in his hometown? Maybe jealousy. Why? Yeah. 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 There's probably still a few people in your life that see you like you're seven. Right? So when I go back to my hometown in New Jersey, there's still a few people that watch me grow up, that call me Little Randy. Little Randy. Because my dad's name is Randy, so I was Little Randy. And my son's people call Little Randy, even though he's bigger than I am. Right, so I can still go back, and it, it just won't matter how old I get, the experiences I have in my adult life. It doesn't matter that I'm even actually a grandfather at this point. To some folks that have seen me grow up, I will always be Little Randy. And, and, and there's, there's something that seems endearing about that at some level, but there's also a certain limitation of understanding me as an adult. Because they can only see me through the lens of the seven-year-old that I knew that walked around with puppets and played with Star Wars men. And I still have my Star Wars men. No more, what's that? I still love the cowboys. See, that's okay. So that, that tarnishes things a little bit. But. The, the, the folks ask, where does he get this understanding? Where, where does he, you know, how is it that he is apparently a miracle worker? So they're asking good questions, actually, because they're, they're wondering about the source. Is it from God or from men? But yet they can't look past the limitations of their own personal experience. That's where we can say, can, can I look past the limitations of my own personal experience? 
They had seen Jesus grow up. They knew his family and his background. There's an old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And not only do his neighbors refuse to see him, but by, through the limitations of their own personal experience, but they, it says that they take offense at him. He becomes a stumbling block for them. So, so the very people that you would think that, that would respond the best to him do the opposite. Isn't he the boy that we watch grow up? Isn't he the illegitimate son of Mary? And I say illegitimate, I insert that, and I'll, and I'll say I insert that, because some people speculate, usually you did not refer to a child in this culture through their mother. But there's a few verses all throughout the Gospels that give this idea that there was a persistent rumor that we don't really know who Jesus' father is. Of course, there's some irony in that, right? Isn't he the illegitimate son of Mary? Isn't he, isn't he the carpenter, the son of a carpenter? Isn't he a common laborer just like us? Who does he think he is? And at almost every turn, as the people who encounter Jesus, absent the most needy and the most desperate, see him with great limitation. They, they, they see a small view of Jesus because it's limited by their understanding, their knowledge, their tradition, their theology perhaps, their personal experience. And it says, and, and this should really draw our attention, it says that Jesus was what at their lack of faith? Amazed. There's only a couple times in the Gospels that it says Jesus was amazed. So if the Jesus, the Son of God, was amazed, it should really strike us. Jesus was amazed, Matthew and Luke tells us, when the centurion came and asked for his servant to be healed, and Jesus says, I will go with you to heal him. And the centurion says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I understand authority. All you have to do is say the word. And it says Jesus is amazed at his faith. But here Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. And that lack of faith directly correlates to the limit, limitation of miracles performed by Jesus. Now, I don't believe that, it, that Mark in any way is saying that Jesus lacked power because of this or lacked ability because of this. But rather, where faith is absent, the move of God is often absent. You only ask for a mustard seed, right? But where faith is absent, the move of God is often absent. Not always. Jesus calms a storm, right? Says, where is your faith? Jesus goes over and, and uh, heals the man that is oppressed by all those demons in a setting of which people had no faith. But, but there does seem to be this rhythm throughout the Gospels and the church that where faith is absent, the move of God is absent. Now, on the flip side, it's a mistake to think that faith itself somehow constitutes God's power. 
this is again, and I'll refer to this later, this, you know, where people say, well, I just need faith and I just need more faith and that's going to be the power of God. Just as signs and wonders do not in and of themselves constitute faith, they don't create... Signs and wonders themselves didn't create genuine faith. In fact, Jesus seems to push back on people following just because of signs and wonders. They don't create faith. And in just the same way, faith does not create signs and wonders. Instead, faith is the environment in which the power of God flourishes. Faith is the gateway through which the the power of God travels. Jesus' power can never be diminished, but our experiencing that power can be stifled. It can even be cut off by refusal to believe. And you see this displayed with his very neighbors. You refuse to believe, so you have not created the environment of which my power will be shown. So I think we have to ask ourselves, privately, and then even corporately as a church, are we creating an environment of faith? Being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see, walking by faith and not by sight, and in that faith, trusting that that's where God will show himself above and beyond our ability. Or, do we, or are we a people that, that perceives God and Jesus so limitedly that we say, well, you know what? That just doesn't happen in real life. Yeah, I can trust Jesus enough that somewhere out there in this space that I can't see, maybe there's a heaven, maybe I'll get there someday, I, you know, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll trust Jesus enough, I'll check the box so I can hopefully get to that place someday. But right now we're in the real world. Jesus was in the real world. And his people are still in the real world. And the Holy Spirit of God is moving in the real world. And it's the environment of faith that becomes a place that God's power flourishes. The gateway through which it moves. Let's move on. Verses 7 through 13. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent, out, sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So now we see Mark draw another contrast, right? contrast to Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown neighbors, the disciples are now moving out in faith. As they're sent out two by two, they can support one another that way, 
And it was the Jewish custom, right, that testimony would be considered valid by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So as they went out in twos, they can say, this testimony is valid. We're both attesting to this. They go out to preach, and they're commissioned and empowered in the authority of Jesus, not their own. Their work has to be an extension of him. It's still that way, right? Our work has to be an extension of Jesus. It has to be an extension of his work. Not our own work, not our own schemes, not our, not our own figuring it out, not our own power. If we're really to see God's move, God move, it has to be an extension of the work of Jesus. Jesus instructs them, it's interesting, to be very minimalistic about their provisions, even about their lodging. And the thing with the lodging, it seems like what he's saying is, wherever you're welcome, stay. You might get the opportunity to go to someplace nicer. But no, you stay in the place that you're invited. But, but he's, he, he encourages them, take a staff, wear your sandals, don't take any money, don't take any extra provisions, don't take an extra cloak, which would, might have been nice for night, nighttime. Why? Why would he do that? Right, right. Interesting. So he's going to show provision through others that maybe they haven't even met yet. How come every time I talk about providing this morning, it starts raining? Yeah, yeah, the, the whole scene kind of speaks of urgency and simplicity. And, and, and I don't think that Jesus is creating a mandate that says every missionary journey needs to look like this. Every evangelistic journey or, you know, every ministry you need to do looks like this. But he is setting a principle that as we look to minister, we need to trust in Jesus for our daily bread. Right? The Lord's Prayer is that, part of the Lord's Prayer is that we would look to Him for our daily bread. That He would provide for us, not just for, not for ten weeks ahead, ahead, but that each day we'd say, Lord, I need to trust You today. Each place that I go and each conversation I have, Lord, I need to trust You with this conversation. I know some of you folks have had a hard week. You know, as, as jo- if I could, I'm sorry, you know, as you guys go and visit Patty, you got to trust that the Lord is going to provide in that conversation then and there, right? You're going, you're preparing. Lord, I go with your authority. I, I, I go trusting in you. I go prepared with prayer. But in that moment, I got trust for my daily bread. Is is. This principle has to play out in our ministry to our families. This principle has to play out in our ministry to our workmates and our neighbors. And has to play out in our ministry as a church. We need to plan. We need to be good stewards. But we need to say, Lord, I need to trust you today for your supply. And, and, and also pointing to this urgency of the task, they're not to spend undue time with people who, re, who reject the message. 
It's interesting, they're not to force it on anyone. They're not to shove it down people's throats. They're just to offer it. Still true. But rejection of the message is still framed in a really serious manner. And, and, and the Lord says, and I don't think, I actually had a guy, I had a Jehovah Witness one time, when I was, uh, I was a kid. I, I mean, here I was, like seven, eight years old, and he's, he's trying to, you know, preach to me from the Jehovah Witness angle, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, you know, Jesus, I'm looking at my Bible, and, you know, I think Jesus is this, and he's saying, no, I think Jesus is this, and, and at one point he goes, well, I shake the dust off my feet. I'm not even sure that's the attitude, right? See, what this refers to is as, as a Jew, a pious Jew, would go and visit Gentile lands, and they'd come back into the homeland of Israel, they would shake the dust off their feet as a symbol of removing every bit of defilement of what they would have considered the heathen, the pagan, the ungodly. And really, this is very striking. It's hard for us to perceive in our Gentile minds. Jesus is sending these folks out primarily at this point to Jews. And what he's saying is, as you go into a Jewish home, if they don't listen to you and they reject the message of the kingdom of God, you're to perceive them and shake the dust off your feet as if they are not the people of God. Because they've rejected the message of God manifested in Jesus. Because when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ, a decision has to be made. and, And that decision is either a decision of, yes, I accept it, I yield to it, I bow to it, Jesus, Lord and Savior, forgive my sins, I enter into eternal life, and it's unto salvation, or I straight arm it and reject it, and then it's a testimony against you. Their work is the same as the work of the Lord. They preach repentance, turning from sin unto the kingdom rule of God, manifested in Jesus. There's a deliverance of the evil oppression that would stand in the way. And they begin to live into this calling of being fishers of men. And Jesus sets the stage for what's to come, the ministry of the church that will be established. Jesus, the cornerstone, the apostles, part of that foundation. But that what's to come is even us. That the Lord would continue to build the kingdom through his people, sending them out, sending them out. And note how, how risky all this seems. I mean, <laughs> moving in faith is, will always feel risky. It's the risk of trusting a supernatural God in the face of earthly circumstances that kind of say, well, life just doesn't work that way. People like that don't respond. Circumstances like that don't change. There's always an allure of safety in the church. 
Some will always convince themselves that, that life as a Christian is all about protecting myself and protecting others from all the risk and harm and evil that could happen out there. Yet what we see of Jesus is him going out there and him sending out there. That when we gather, we're, we're, we're lifting our voices and, and singing with our souls and praise and honor to the Lord, which is good. We're, we're, we're seeing uh, the, the saints be built up for the works of service that we would go out there. Who were these guys to embark in this mission? I mean, they, they had seen Jesus work miracles. They had heard Jesus teach. They had the privilege of his extra explanation of teaching. Yet, their responses and even their faith, you know, at this point, up to this point, there hasn't, it hasn't been glowing. They're kind of bumbling around. They're asking questions. They're not sure. Jesus still sends them out. Imperfect men, still in progress, and they need to respond in faith, trusting that God's going to supply the need and make up for their inadequacies. We still need to do that. You're always going to be in progress. So when the Lord puts on Alan's heart and Susie's heart that I need to go speak to my neighbor who's a raging alcoholic, I'm not sure how this is going to go, I'm not sure I'm really, you know, adequate for the task, I need to say, Lord, you're adequate for the task. And if you're going to send me, I'm going to obey. And I'm going to trust that you can make up my inadequacies. It's where growth comes. That's where God's power is found. Donald, Donald English, uh, one quote this morning. I thought this was really good. He said, a safe church is rarely an influential one. A safe church is rarely an influential one. Are we willing to take the risk, quote-unquote, of moving in faith? Finally, this last section, it's a little longer. We won't comment on it as much as could be commented. This is the only section, this only kind of a little more lengthy narrative in Mark's gospel that doesn't speak of Jesus specifically. Uh, starting at verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Uh, some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why mir- miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. 
On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you, you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. He couldn't really do that, actually, but it was probably a way of him expressing she could have whatever she wanted. She went out and asked her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. Phew. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. So it's a really almost bizarre story. You almost see, it's weird, like some twisted values play out. Herod feels like he has to keep his word, so he does a double wrong. Um, Herodias' daughter has this loyalty to her mother, so she asks, so she conspires in murder. You know, we've reflected on the stifling that comes with a lack of faith. We've reflected on the, the move of God that comes with our move of faith. And here I think we're reminded of the cost of faith in Jesus. And it's stirred by this misunderstanding that Herod has, who, again, the Herods were a very evil family, of who Jesus is, stirred by his guilty conscience. At some level, we could say Herod seems to have a spiritual curiosity. It it probably leans more into the superstitious. He won't receive and yield to the kingdom of God. He looks ultimately to protect his own kingdom, even if that means silencing John, even if that means killing John, even though he was reluctant to do so, as long as it'll save face. Curiosity about spiritual things doesn't cross the threshold of sincere faith. Superstition, a distorted view of God, which clearly Herod had, uh, isn't a genuine godly spirituality. And as Herod refuses to yield to what God is doing in his midst, he remains curious and he remains, it seems, even superstitious, but he remains tormented. Jesus is going around performing miracles and he's freaked out because he thinks John has risen from the dead. And Mark is likely using this as a flashback um, of John's death to foreshadow what's coming for Jesus. And he's also, again, as he's likely writing to those who are being persecuted, the church being persecuted in Rome, it's also a reminder of the cost of faith for every believer. That ultimately, as we enter into faith with Christ, there has to be a willingness even to lay down our lives. For some, literally. Still, today, 
that's happening. Many say it measures that's never happened before in the history of the church. But every one of us is called to lay down our lives, surrendering the the stubbornness of our hearts, the desires of the flesh, and yielding to His will and His way. Herod and his family only yield to what they think safeguards their own simple choices. But, but I think this story does speak against this distortion. If you just have more faith, all will go well. Faith is surely the environment, as we said, of God's power in which it flourishes. It's a gateway of which it travels. But this does not mean that our measure of faith puts demands on God to do things our way and in our time, as we would choose, as we would expect. And and faith has to be present in the triumphant seasons. Faith has to be present as the disciples go out and have this successful short-term mission, we might call it. But it also has to function in seasons of dryness, in seasons of difficulty and darkness. The Christian life isn't a steady stream of miracles. I believe God still performs miracles. But it's not going to be a steady stream of miracles. It's not going to be a steady stream of excitement, a steady stream of triumph and victory. To present it as such is unfair and unbiblical. And what we see in the biblical narrative is that true faith has to help us navigate times of disappointment and darkness and loneliness and pain and trial. And in fact, that's where faith is tested most. So how we understand and respond to God and Jesus will shape how we respond to the rest of life. If it's healthy and true and ever-increasing, we will respond with faith in kind. If it's distorted, if it's limited, if it's false, if it's stifled, our responses to life will also be. Jesus' neighbors were small-minded. Jesus was a boy that grew up under their nose and they wanted to keep him there. Herod was curious but not willing to yield to anything but that which perceived, that he perceived advanced his own kingdom and his own selfish game. To him, the, the move of God was something to gawk at, but not something to yield to. The disciples, as unprepared and insufficient as they were, moved out in faith and they trusted Jesus' authority and power each step of the way. And they saw God move. John the Baptist faces the dungeon and the sword, knowing that faith has to work even more eagerly in the dark than it does in the light. So how is your understanding of Jesus shaping your faith? Is he merely a man? Are you merely religiously curious or even superstitious? Or is he the Son of God that sends you out with authority and power? Because even as this week comes, maybe even as this day continues, God will continue to put you in situations that invite you to faith. Conversations, trials, triumphs. But to do so, you have to have a true and ever-increasing view of Jesus and who you are in him. 
if you've come to him in faith, loved, saved, commissioned, empowered. It's only in yielding to, to who he really is, to his salvation, to his authority, to his power, that you'll see God move beyond your inadequacy, inadequacies, beyond your abilities, whether it be in the triumph or in the dungeon. Let's pray. Father, we have gone through these 29 verses and we've seen these mixed responses. Neighbors, disciples, Herod, John the Baptist. But Lord, their responses were always indicative of either their understanding and their faith in you or their distortion, their misunderstanding, and their rejection of you. I pray, Lord God, that personally and corporately we nurture an environment of faith that trusts you to move beyond our inabilities and inadequacies. That we know that that the supernatural God is still intersecting the quote-unquote real world. And I pray, Lord, that as these men and women and children go out today and throughout the week, they ask the question, how is my understanding of Jesus, my faith, my my ever and growing vision of him affecting how I live my life, how I have this conversation, what I choose to fret about or not, As you increase our faith, may we wonder at your power. And Lord, I pray also for those that need faith in the darkness, for those that are experiencing the season in the dungeon and sword, that their faith works out even more mightily there. That they trust, Lord God, that their circumstances don't tell tell them what is true that their personal experience isn't all that there is to reality, but they trust in you, the good God, the mighty God, who will bring all things under his rightness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.